Welcome to the Wild Ideas podcast. Each episode, we take an in-depth look at an animal, landscape, or idea that has shaped nature conservation. I'm Alex Shuttleworth. And I'm Oliver Blow. And this week, we're doing seal colonies in the UK, which I think both of us have been pretty excited to cover. Definitely. Partly because we sort of need to process what happened the last time <laughs> we actually saw some <laughs> wild seals. Yeah, there's a lot of emotional baggage after that, uh, that experience. <laughs> Do you want to tell the story? Do you want to introduce it to our listeners? Okay, sure. Yeah. So uh, when was this? This was just before Christmas, right? Like early December? Yeah, we just finished the national lockdown yeah. in the UK. Yeah, so so this last December, Alex, myself, and another friend of ours uh, from our course, we decided to go on a wild adventure to the coast, and uh, we wanted to go and visit the grey seal colonies that are there. And um, we got... We got up quite early, didn't we? What, what time did we leave? We set off at like around four o'clock in the yeah, morning. Yeah, this was an early little adventure. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, so in the dark we set off and we went uh, and we managed to actually arrive at the cliff sides um, just, just as the sun was rising. We also got a little bit more than we bargained for um, as it was still sort of mating or breeding season um, for the gray seals and um, it being sort of the early morning hours I think the male seals had a had a, a thirst for some loving and um, <laughs> we we got we caught an eyeful we caught an eyeful really uh, and it was scary we definitely we, we saw um, a lot of a seal it's fair to say and yeah I, I I didn't realize seal penises were so red. That's kind of like the only take I have on that. I mean, I grew up like the rest of us with these beautiful photos of cute, cuddly seal pups and seals just wanting to, you know, hug you, basically. And then to be, you know, quite rudely awakened from that, that nice dream. <laughs> <laughs> because it was so early in the morning i just remember when we were up at like the cliff top just in this kind of like complete haze sort of like am i dreaming and also why is my dream this yeah why do i keep having this nightmare <laughs> like recurring <laughs> and then like after our visit to the seal colony i just remember the three of us kind of sitting with a view of the sea just a bit like so should we talk about what happened <laughs> Yeah, totally and utterly shell-shocked. It took weeks of therapy to, to even get to this point where we can talk about it again. We're getting through it. So yeah, one of the things I took away from that experience, despite the fact that wildlife watching is not the wholesome activity that I have been told um, growing up, yeah. is that, yeah, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that we think about seals as these really cute, cuddly, defenseless animals rather than these quite aggressive, large, carnivorous ones. And seals are actually like a rare example of a large carnivorous animal that we've allowed to grow in numbers and expand into new areas in the last 50 years, uh, including urban areas where a surprisingly wide array of people are greeting them positively. Let me show you an example of that. So I'm going to send you a video. Oh, here we go. It's a field trip. It's a field trip time. This seal can escape to the Thames should she choose to do so. Yet she prefers to stay. Certainly catching fish here is a lot easier. Nice big juicy mackerel fry. Bit hungry, 
They've proper given this seal like a, a big fish. I mean, that. This seal eats better than I do. So, this is the clip from a 2012 BBC documentary of some porters at Billingsgate Market in London feeding fish to one of the grey seals that has taken up residence in the Thames estuary. And to be honest, it just makes me really happy. It is very cute. And also, I just, I find the accent really hilarious. <laughs> it makes me so happy. <laughs> Bloody more fish in there than there is over there. Elderly fisherman <laughs> talking to a seal like it's a dog and going, who's a good gal? Like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's food for the soul. Who's <laughs> that? She does like to perform, especially when she's angry. It's, yeah, it's a happy seal and then just brilliant regional accents. And it's sort of like, not today, anxiety, not today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so what I want to do for this episode is kind of answer the question of how seals in the UK went from this animal that we knew very little about and hunted for centuries to being an almost universally beloved part of British wildlife that even fishmongers in central London can appreciate. And what's interesting is the history of the UK seal colonies is not just a rare case of the UK acting to save a large carnivorous predator from extinction, but it's also one of the earliest cases of government-led species conservation in British history. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I, I'm excited to learn a little bit about the history of seals in the UK. My knowledge of seals very much is located in, in North America uh, and around the issues that, that we've had with uh, the EU banning seal hunt and, and uh, other environmental issues surrounding seals in, in Canada. So I'm, I'm excited to hear what you've got to, to tell me in your story, Alex. I'd, I'd love to hear it. Thank you, Ollie. And yeah, this is why I'm excited to tell you about um, this story, because this is the um, upside to us doing a kind of transatlantic co-hosting team. Yeah, yeah. We might, we might have a small Canadian audience after this. Yay! <laughs> Welcome! <laughs> I hope you find this story interesting. Okay, so this is the story of seal conservation in the UK. I'm ready. So it's worth emphasizing how little we used to know or care about seals in the UK. There are no reliable seal population counts in the UK before the 20th century. And for centuries, people kind of just viewed them like they viewed fish, like this immeasurable resource from the ocean that you could exploit for food, oil, or in this case, seal skin to make clothing. And that's kind of how things are in the UK up until the end of the 19th century. Seals are being hunted across the country at this time, uh, especially by local communities living in some of the more remote Scottish islands. But what happens is British hunters start to prize grey seals as a hunting trophy. And it's these trophy hunters who are the first people to sound the alarm over how there aren't as many seals as there used to be in the waters around the UK. I mean, it's that's a common theme, isn't it? It's usually the hunters that are sort of the first to realize, but it's funny in this situation that it's trophy hunters <laughs> that have noticed. Yeah, it's a really interesting kind of footnote in history, but they're the ones who lead the charge about protecting grey seals in the UK. Um, and they start putting pressure on MPs and the Secretary of State for Scotland to protect the UK grey seal population, which is thought to be as small as 500 animals at this time. Wow. And this call to protect the grey seals after centuries of hunting and commercial exploitation eventually succeeds. And in 1914, the government passes the Grey Seal Protection Act. And this is the first act of parliament designed specifically to protect a British mammal. Wow, in 1914. Yeah. Wow, you would have thought they had more important things on their mind. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, we will get to that. Yeah, 1914, known only for protecting Grey Seals and nothing else. Yeah, <laughs> nothing nothing else happened that year. So, yeah, I'm going to talk you through the 1914 Grey Seal Protection Act. Yeah, which is this kind of landmark piece of British law, um, being the first law designed to specifically protect a British mammal. So the 1914 Act is not a complete ban on Grey Seal hunting. It basically just made it an offence to kill, wound, or take a grey seal during most of their breeding season. So it basically covers October to mid-December, um, and that becomes the closed season for hunting in the UK. Hmm. Okay. But outside of that, the Act doesn't offer much legal protection to seals. Crucially, the 1914 Grey Seals Protection Act was only created to protect grey seals, so it didn't provide any protection to the other species of seal in the UK, the common seal. Uh, which was still being hunted across the UK in the early 20th century. Right. Okay. This is 1914. Most of the political decisions made this year come with some pretty major flaws and drawbacks. <laughs> like, it's not a great year for political progress. <laughs> no, not, not particularly. One thing people have noticed when they've looked at the 1914 Act is it didn't ban the use of strychnine poisoning to kill seals. Mm. Do you know anything about strychnine as a poison? Have you heard of this before? Yeah, I, I know that it's not particularly pleasant is this yeah. one of the i'm not 100 percent sure but is it one of the like bleeding poisons you know what i mean like the anticoagulant ones that they use or is it not uh, i don't think it does that i will spare you the details about what strychnine does because it's really grim okay. but um basically the end result is people or animals poisoned by strychnine convulse a lot and they have muscle spasms and they have this really dramatic reaction. Oh, okay. um, and strychnine is actually famously associated with detective stories in Agatha Christie novels because yeah. people poisoned by it have these big reactions. So there's this big dramatic scene in those detective stories. Right. Okay. And yeah, basically at the time, uh, seal hunters are using salmon baited with strychnine to kill seals. So that's where Agatha Christie came up with all those novels based on the seal hunting. Yes, strychnine is just floating around the ocean at this time, so it's like, <laughs> you know, ample fodder for writers in 1914. <laughs> so yeah, those are the drawbacks to the 1914 Act. But by enshrining the protection of grey seals during their breeding season into law, the Act puts in place one of the main reasons the UK grey seal population begins to recover and starts to grow over the 20th century. The other big factor behind the grey seal population recovery in the 20th century is during the first half of this century, people living on remote islands in Scotland start leaving these places and moving to the mainland. The most famous example of that, or one of the most famous, is people abandoning the island of St Kilda, which is a very remote Scottish island in the North Atlantic. And in 1930, the final 36 people living on that island abandon it and move to the mainland to start new lives. And after 1930, grey seals start breeding in St Kilda. Oh, interesting. And that's actually one of the reasons why the 500 grey seals left figure is now considered an understatement by biologists. Because at the time that figure came out, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, people are leaving behind islands and basically freeing up good habitat for grey seals to start breeding. Right. So basically, yeah, the kind of first few decades of the 20th century, people still have this really poor idea of how many grey seals there are in UK waters. And that's because many of the existing seal colonies are in remote places or are spreading to newly abandoned areas. And also because some landowners take it upon themselves to go above the 1914 Act and protect seals from all human disturbance. So an example of this is the Farn Islands. Basically, they were originally owned by the Thorpe family, who managed the islands as a private wildlife sanctuary. And then there's this guy who's a member of that family, Collingwood Thorpe, 
which is a great name. Like, you don't get a lot of Collingwoods floating around these days, do you? Oh, my good man, Collingwood. <laughs> Mr. Thorpe. It's very, it's very Downton Abbey, or it kind of makes me think of, like, Family Guy, where they make fun of British people. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and these are the names all the characters have. Like, this is a real man's name. So. I'm just going to start calling everyone Collingwood here. <laughs> I mean, I can't talk too much because my name is equally weird and, like, obscure old English as well. I like Shuttleworth. I think it's cool. Thank you. I had to, like, give a phonetic spelling of it for the audio version of a book I helped illustrate. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> typing out Shuttleworth in phonetics is just such a strange experience. I'm like, Shuttleworth. <laughs> That's right, isn't it? That's right. That's what you need. <laughs> I might be over overthinking it, but I was just like, is that is that how I say it? <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, you probably got a lot less flack at school than I did for blow being my last name oh okay i don't know people people really ran with shuttlecock but even that it's just like a reference to badminton you know <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, right where it hurts the racket sports yeah oh yeah. no yeah yeah okay blow blow would definitely be tough on the playground um, <laughs> my sympathy is with you <laughs> oh it's not so bad okay so there's collingwood thorpe from the thorpe family and in 1925 he oversees the sale of the fine islands to the national trust but basically, he remains on the local National Trust Committee that's set up to manage the island. And during his time on the committee, he refuses to let uh, university science departments or government bodies survey the seals there. And the first Farn Islands Grey Seal survey isn't actually done until the 50s. So he basically spends the first half of the 20th century keeping everyone at bay uh, from the seals there on the Farn Islands. Mm. Um, also at the time, a seal tourism industry starts emerging from the 1920s. Um, really? And yeah, local fishermen and local communities start giving their support for the protection of wow. the grey seals on the Fine Islands. Wow. I mean, I can understand that. They're very, you know, obviously extremely charismatic and I feel like they're quite uh, quite habitual uh, yeah. as well, which I feel like, you know, makes it easy to spot them and, and lead tours like that. So that's interesting. Yeah. So there's very early on, there is this tourism industry that's emerging in the Fine Islands uh, based around grey seals and is supporting their protection. And also at this time, people are giving quite biased estimates of the grey seal population. Some conservationists are underestimating the population of grey seals um, because there's talk about uh, their impact on fishing and because right. they're being hunted still in some cases. Um, so people don't want to say that there's a large population in an area or that a population's growing uh, in case that's mm. used to fuel more calls for culling. And then people linked to the commercial fisheries are giving these inflated population estimates to say that the grey seal population is a, becoming a real problem and needs controlling. Yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of the state of play for the early 20th century. And in 1932, amid all of this uncertainty about the grey seal population, and also the local and scientific community support that is emerging for their protection. The government passes a new Grey Seals Protection Act. And this is basically, it's very similar to the 1914 Act, but it extended the close season for hunting for Grey Seals to cover all of October and December. So basically it covers their entire breeding season. Mm. But it also meant that the government could lift the protection of seals in a specific area and change the time covered by the closed season. So the government basically has the power to alter the protection of grey seal populations in the UK. Right, right. Which is like sort of potentially good, potentially bad. Yeah, it's sort of like the, all the power rests with the government and they can decide how protected grey seals are at this right, time. Right, right. I suppose that, that leaves them open to 
potential exploitation if they became valuable in some way. Yeah, so there's this kind of ongoing battle of uh, which group is going to influence the government and the way it uses the act to control seal populations in the UK. Um, and that's kind of like the state of play in the 1930s. Uh, the grey seal population grows to about 8,000 by 1932. That's the sort of estimate that we have looking back. Right. And in this time, there are growing concerns over the impact of grey seals on fisheries. The fishing industry in Northumberland starts blaming grey seals in the Farne Islands for the decline in salmon and sea trout catches. And the same thing is happening in Scotland. They're blaming seals in Northumberland and the Farne Islands for coming up and raiding fish catches in Scotland. Hmm. What's kind of interesting is there's this bunch of conflicting factions that become involved in the grey seal debate. There's the Northumberland Anglers Federation that argues that seal are driving salmon into shallow waters. So they come out in support of grey seals, basically, because they're saying they're helping their sport. Ah, didn't see that coming. I thought, you, as soon as you said Anglers Federation, I thought, okay, well, they're not going to be pro-seal. Yeah, it's worth noting there's like quite a wide variety of opinion circling around this time about grey seals within just the fishing community of Great Britain. Yeah. There are also local fishermen in the Farne Islands who come out in support of the grey seals there because of the growing tourism industry, which have been providing them with a source of income since the 1920s, at least. Um, and then also there are conservation like Collingwood Thorpe who are advocating for total protection of the Farne Island seals and he basically is trying to like argue that the seals are part of National Trust property so they can't be killed or harmed in any way because they are the property of the National Trust and they're protected under their remit basically. Right okay. And in 1938 there's this conference in Newcastle which is attended by the National Trust, the local Farne Islands Management Committee, the Ministry of Agriculture and Fisheries and the Northern Sea Fisheries Committee. So all the people involved in the grey seal debate with a mix of opinions for and against grey seal protection. So the, in the conference, the fisheries argue that the grey seal population needs culling because of their impact on fishing. And the conservationists and people who support the grey seals in the Farne Islands say that the evidence that grey seals are heavily impacting fishing is inconclusive at this time. Uh, and it could just be that there are a few rogue seals uh, who are doing all of the damage to fisheries that um, people are reporting. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this conference ends with a general agreement that no action should be taken against seals until more evidence on their population and their impact is obtained. So yeah, they kind of just agree to um, come back when there's more research and that they can't make any decisions right now. That's uh, impressive. I thought you were going to say, and they decided to kill everyone, all those seals, <laughs> take them out, hunt those rogue seals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a very contentious debate, but it's a much more varied debate than just fisheries and conservationists battling it out. I always like it when, when environmental situations are solved by saying we need more info. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of every environmental situation, Ollie. Exactly right. <laughs> are you there at the end of every journal article where it says further research is needed? Like, oh, what an ending. <laughs> every single one yeah <laughs> so um yeah so this conference ends with this idea that more research is needed and that's basically what happened in the late 1930s in 1938 there's this naturalist frank fraser darling and he carries out the first ever in-depth study of british grey seals on north rona in the outer hebrides do you want to see a picture of frank Fraser darling in action you're damn right i do what was his name again? Frank Fraser Darling. Everyone's got a great name in this in this episode. Frank Fraser Darling. Yeah. He's Frank Fraser Darling. He's Frank Fraser. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, I think he's quite a well-respected ecologist, so I, that kind of intro seems apt. Right. That should have got through to you. Oh, Frank. So, yeah, do you want to describe what's in, what the photo is? Yes, yeah, so Alex has just sent me a 
uh, quite actually a lovely photo of uh, Frank Fraser Darling, who is very much cuddling a seal. A seal pup. Among even. some rocks. <laughs> so he, he looks, yeah, he looks a little bit homeless. Here. <laughs> uh, like most, like most environment, like people working in the environmental sciences, he looks homeless. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, he's doing uh, what some, some behavior, which I've, come to associate as being very bad yeah i was gonna point this out too this photo is of frank fraser darling in a i think it's a ruined shepherd's hut it's a ruin on north Rhone island and he is hugging a gray seal pup and looking down at it affectionately which is adorable it is very adorable but also a really bad idea because i mean this is the 1930s standards are different but we know now that if you are basically crowding around a seal pup uh you probably will scare off that seal pup's mum and the seal pup may abandon the seal may abandon their pup. Yeah, there's a good chance, right? There's a good chance that the mother will abandon the pup. Yeah. So I mean, this was the 1930s. Standards were different, and you know, he is a, he's a researcher, I guess. It might be worth saying, actually noting that when we went to see the seals, we met uh, just in passing a fellow um, who. I don't know if he volunteers with an organization that looks out for the colony of seals there, but he mentioned that recently some visitors to the colony had gotten too close and had caused a mother to abandon her pup and that the pup had to, in the end, be euthanized, uh, unfortunately. so Yeah, and I mean, it kind of just shows that seal disturbance is a really, you know severe issue for seals in the uk still it's something that we definitely need to think about um especially those of us who enjoy wildlife watching or appreciate a seal every now and then Mm -hmm. and yeah with this kind of whole thing about seal hugging i guess just as a general rule if bridget bardo did it then reconsider it if you're (laughs) about to do it yourself (laughs) like i think i mean that's kind of what we've learned now right like bridget bardo um Big seal activist, also very abhorrent views. She's been fined for inciting racial hatred multiple times in France. So, yeah. (laughs) Bridget. If Bridget did it, step away. Bridget, where did things go so wrong? I mean, that's another podcast episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so yeah, this is Frank Fraser, darling. Um, And then, yeah, while he is studying and surveying the grey seal population on North Rona, uh, he writes about that when it comes to grey seal pups, uh, there is no creature born even among greater apes which more resembles a human baby in the way it cries than a baby grey seal. Right. So he's kind of giving an early indication, this is 1938, that cuteness is going to play a really big part in shaping people's relationships with seals and the public understanding of seals. I mean, that's that whole sentence could be a whole episode, couldn't it? Just the uh, factors affecting, like, conservation funding for rare species you know cute or not yeah i mean just don't underestimate the power of cuteness in influencing conservation big time and this podcast will be an example of that (laughs) so yeah uh end of the 1930s frank fraser darling does the first study uh people are starting to gather more information about the gray seal population do you know anything about whether these uh uk regulations picked up any momentum throughout the rest of europe i can tell you that the appreciation of grey seals at this time starts to emerge as a kind of weird thing that sets the UK as different to other countries. Oh, right. That sets the UK apart from other countries. In Ireland, they actually repeal the 1914 Act protecting grey seals. Oh, right. 
1920, uh, there's somebody writing, like, I could try and find this, like, so I can actually say it properly. I've got it uh, in a journal article up here, so I can tell you. <laughs> Please hold for more content. A customer representative will be with you shortly. <laughs> here we go. So in 1924, Charles Green, who is the Minister of Fisheries in Dublin, writes to the Fisheries Board of Scotland talking about grey seals. And he says, while you've been cherishing the brutes, we've been offering rewards for their destruction. Right. <laughs> so you can tell that we're talking about the 1920s because, yeah, something is described as a brute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the UK starts to emerge as this place of uh, seal conservation and seal protection in a way that is quite different to other countries at the time. So yeah, while people are trying to gather more information on grey seal populations and their impact on fishing, there's kind of this stalemate between fisheries and anti-seal hunting groups through the 1940s, right? So grey seals are still being hunted outside of the closed breeding season that was established by the 1932 Protection Act. Um, and common seals are still being hunted without any protection on them at all, particularly in the Wash in East England and in the Shetland Islands. That's where a lot of the hunting of common seals is taking place. And at the same time, local communities in areas with seal colonies like the Farne Islands are turning out in support of seal protection and maintaining nature sanctuaries for them. And then also uh, the Monarch Islands in the Outer Hebrides start to become depopulated and they are abandoned from 1945 onwards, which is when grey seals start breeding there. So new colonies are being founded, seal hunting is still taking place outside of closed seasons, but there is some local support in areas like the Far Islands for their protection. So through the 40s and 50s, I mean, I know you said that actual population figures don't really come out until quite late on. Yeah. But um, did the population stay somewhat stable yeah. or was it declining heavily because of some areas of protection, but still most countries and most places treating seals as a resource well let me tell you what basically what happens is in 1950 two naturalists grace hickling and ian telfer carry out the first ever count of gray seals on the fine islands grace hickling and ian telfer are on the local fine island management committee at the time uh, but collingwood thorpe uh has sort of stepped down and retired and he passes away in the next few years oh Poor Collingwood. It's of old age. He, he did his bit, you know. But the Farne Islands, as a result, become open up to scientific inquiry because of, yeah, the sort of reduction in people advocating total protection of them. Right. Yeah, so two naturalists from the local Farne Islands Management Committee, Grace Hickling and Ian Telfer, carry out the first ever count of grey seals on the Farne Islands. Wow. So what year What year was that, the first ever count? Uh, 1950. That's when they're doing the count. I think they published it in 1951. Right. And they count a total of 900 adults and 450 pups. And they realize that the population has grown significantly right. since, you know, previous counts, like previous estimates, essentially. And there's this internal discussion in the National Trust about what to do to avoid the fishing industry getting this information and using it to bolster the call for a seal cull. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, they're kind of sitting on this information, not really sure what to do. At the time, there is more surveying of grey seals and complaints over the damage to fish catches caused by grey seals increase through the 1950s. Representatives of the fishing industry start to publish figures on how much money is being lost in local fisheries due to the damage they claim is being done by seals to fishing stocks. And they're kind of putting more pressure on the government to act in response to this information that they're supplying them with. Yeah. But at the time, what happens is we get the same conclusion as happened in the 1930s, that it's only 
a small proportion of the seals that are raiding fishing areas in estuaries uh, north of the Thorn Islands. Um, and there's no need to exercise control measures on the whole breeding colony. But the government agrees to keep reviewing the data brought in from seal tagging studies in areas with growing seal colonies like the Farn Islands. So they agree to start paying more attention to population counts that start coming in at the time. Right. So there's this agreement for more information, but to closely review the situation. But it's really the 1950s where things start to change and opinions about seal culling in Britain in the conservation community specifically start to change and develop as well. And what happens is several of the large government bodies and prominent conservationists brought into the seal culling debate and also charged with their management start to consider a grey seal cull might be a necessary part of nature conservation. So there's Cyril Driver and Max Nicholson, who are the first two director generals of the Nature Conservancy, uh, which is the organisation that eventually is broken up into the different nature agencies in the UK, like Natural England and Scottish Natural Heritage. Mm. Uh, at the time, it's known as the Nature Conservancy, and it covers the whole of the UK. So yeah, Cyril Driver and Max Nicholson, uh, they consecutively discuss what to do about the growing seal population in the UK. Uh, and at one point, they consider whether it would be practical to transport surplus UK grey seals to other countries for profit. Right. So they think about sending them to Norway and Iceland, I think Canada as well, like a few other countries to try and get rid of the growing seal um, population issue. So were any seals ever sent off to uh, Norway? <laughs> they were not. Um, I've got this from a journal article that I'm basing a lot of this heavily on, which is from Robert A. Lambert. It was written in 2002. It's really good. Um, as he points that no, he points out that no plan was made about what happens if the seals swam back. <laughs> just resell them again, right? Yeah, if they come back, just <laughs> that's the classic con, right? But also, also, I mean, it's been pointed out, like in um, objection to culls, people have asked, why don't you move seals rather than kill them? And the basic uh, argument against that that a lot of conservationists have taken up is that moving seals distresses them more than a cull would and puts them through more agony than a cull would and also it's an incredibly costly maneuver like and just logistically very difficult right right so there's some top minds on this thinking out of the box also it's worth noting frank fraser darling also starts to advocate for an annual seal cull on the basis of conservation during this time and he gives a quite sort of logical argument to this. He basically says that sentiment is a dangerous foundation for conservation policy. Yeah. And also governments are fickle and they can revoke nature protection in response to vested in interests just as easily as they can enforce it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he's kind of saying that, uh, yeah, the government right now has decided to protect seals, but it could revoke that. So maybe it would make mm. sense to have an annual cull of seals so that they could be protected as this valued resource. Uh, rather than something that would just aggravate different groups if it's allowed to grow without any restriction. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and there's this kind of idea of conservation through wise management that is growing and being taken up more and more at this time. Um, and it eventually becomes incredibly mainstream. In 1964, the president of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the IUCN, Francois Boulier, writes about how the long-term survival of all life on Earth depends on conservation through wise management. And he also worries about the danger of uh, 19th century style preservation and the creation of nature sanctuaries uh, with inflexible protection, which is essentially what the Farne Islands uh, is made out to be at the time. Right. There's the National Trust Nature Conservation Subcommittee, 
that becomes accepting of the fact that a cull uh, of gray seals might be necessary as a part of site management and might be within the national interest. Um, but there is friction within the National Trust. The local Farne Islands Committee um, and a lot of UK naturalists remain opposed to seal culling. So the Executive Committee of the National Trust comes to an agreement that there is no sufficient reason or public support for seal culling, but if they're pushed, they won't stand in the way of one if the government deems a cull to be within the national interest and uses the powers it has under the 1932 Grey Seals Protection Act. Right. So they're kind of begrudgingly accepting that a cull is going to happen. Or yeah. might happen. And what happens is between May 1958 and July 1959, the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food responds to the growing pressure put on it by the Scottish fishing industry um, and issues orders allowing for an experimental cull of grey seals in the Farne Islands and also in Scotland. Hmm. So they give the go-ahead for culls, basically. And this yeah. is like when we start getting into public opposition to seal culls in Great Britain. Right. So... Basically, what happens is the 1958 experimental seal cull in the Farne Islands is basically a disaster and <laughs> is called off. Really? Local boatmen refuse to take part in it. Really? Uh, the local press comes out against the seal cull and runs loads of stories about um, what's happening. And they run headlines like murder in the nursery <laughs> that drum up lots of media storm and yeah, lots of public anger. And then Grace Hickling, that naturalist who was one of the first people to survey the Farne Island seal population. She compiles a report about the more gruesome and inefficient methods used in the in the cull. Because remember, poisoning is still legal at this time. So there are all of these methods that a lot of people are objecting on an animal welfare basis and also on the fact that they're very inefficient and just kind of gruesome, horrible ways to kill an animal. Yeah. Um, and the National Trust receives this report and then pressures the government to call off the cull, which is what they do. Um, and they call off the cull, but they criticize the National Trust for basically harboring seals, which they say are damaging people's livelihoods. Uh, to be fair, they're in, in, a, in between a rock and a hard place, really, aren't they? With the yeah. fishy, fisheries pressuring them and then the trust pressuring them the other way. Yeah, and it's that, you know, the argument about um, nature conservation and is it conservation if it, you know, damages people's livelihoods and completely restricts their access to an income to support themselves or their families. Hmm. We'll have to come back to that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, one thing I was going to say about, um, you know, that conservation through wise use argument is that that argument is still uh, happening today, especially in regards to animal conservation in Africa and whether it makes sense to protect animals in nature reserves with armed guards or to protect animals via a trophy hunting system. Um, and there's still a lot of back and forth about what is the correct use um, what is the correct way to protect animals in mm. Africa and whether they should be exploited or just completely protected. Yeah. So yeah, the first cull uh, yeah, in the Farn Islands uh, is called off. But in 1963, the government's committee on grey seals and fisheries uh, recommends that after several years of research, the Orkney and Farn Island breeding colonies should be culled. Uh, and culling resumes in the Farne Islands and also in the Orkney Islands in northeast Scotland. In 1963? Yeah, between 1963 and 1966. Interesting. But what's worth noting is at this time, uh, outrage about the killing of seals, especially seal pups, starts to become a topic in the national press and in public conversation. And yeah, because of the media storm generated over the culling in the Farne Islands, the Orkneys for the first time become a really big part of 
national conversation in the UK. Before they were just a remote, distant uh, region in the UK. And now uh, seal culling in the Orkneys is being talked about in the national press. And it's receiving more public backlash than it ever has before. This is interesting because I think this must have reached across to Canada at the time as well. Because that's, again, when sort of anti-sealers sort of explode on the scene, really, rather than sort of just appear. They really exploded in sort of the 60s in Canada. And in 1965, the government was uh, pressured to pass some legislation that basically made the the killing of seals more humane, or at least the punishment for non not killing them humanely became a thing. Yeah, and I've got a quote from uh, Robert A. Lambert, uh, which I'm going to read to you. From the 1960s, especially in the years of the biggest seal culls in Scotland and in the Farne Islands, the public took up the grey seal as a domestic environmental cause in a far more popular crusade than the naturalists who had sought its protection in the second decade of the century. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it is really interesting. And I feel like we should just uh, emphasize that slightly more specifically to say that basically in the 60s, this environmental issue becomes a non-environmental issue and it becomes more about public opinion and public views than about natural processes and population management yeah this is the time when um like people are becoming resistant to seal calls on an animal welfare basis and a sort of populist basis rather than a conservation um argument about uh limited research yeah. on the impact of seals on fisheries it's now about you know, morals and about animal welfare, basically. Right. So yeah, what happens is, yeah, there's backlash uh, to the culling taking place in the Fire Islands and in the Orkneys. Uh, the National Trust's public image takes a big hit in this time over their allowance of the seal culling in the Fire Islands. They are chastised by the press in Northern England. A few people resign in protest from their positions in the National Trust. Um, and they receive many letters of complaint and also letters from people asking if they can rescue seal pups to keep them in zoos or as pets. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, they are getting a lot of media attention and a lot of public backlash at this time. And also for the first time, there is public anger about the commercial culling of common seals in the Shetland Islands and in the Wash. And, you know, at the time, common seals are receiving no legal protection at all. So that species comes up on the radar as well in, with regards to the backlash about culling. Um, and yeah, it's estimated that at the time, the 1960s, uh, the hunting of common seals for skins had reduced the amount of pups being born in the wash by 50% and mm. in the Shetlands by 75%. Wow. So the common seal wasn't so common after all. Yeah. And it's still not that common. Yeah. I wonder at one point, they, at what point do they say like, oh, we've just, we've got to change the name. <laughs> I did debate about using that other, I say common name as in, you know, biologically common name. Uh, which is the harbour seal, because the common seal is not right. that common in the UK, and we will get to some of the talk about that. So basically, this culminates in um, the National Trust uh, yeah, taking a big hit publicly, and they refused to grant permission for culls on the Farne Islands after 1966 and urged need for more scientific evidence to justify the culls. Hmm. Um, and because of all of this public backlash that is happening at the moment you know, across the country, the government start to review the uh, existing legislation in place protecting seals in the UK. I see. Um, and in May 1970, they pass the Conservation of Seals Act, which still provides the basis of protection for seals in England and Wales today. Okay. 
Can you tell me a little bit about the act? What What's in the act? I can tell you a little bit about the act. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was going to be a point in the story where, like, we get heavy into legal jargon and I have to be like, stay with me, Ollie. We're about to talk about Canada. I'm going to say Newfoundland a lot and hope I pronounced it correctly. Yeah, I, don't, <laughs> I, I wonder if we need someone um like a third person on our podcast that literally doesn't know anything or has very little interest in environmental issues so when we get to bits like this they can say skip or <laughs> <laughs> that third person can be you dear listener you can write to us on comments and say this bit was boring you should have cut it <laughs> shut up about uk law and seals <laughs> it's important and when you know we will get through it and then we all can have some more fun stories about uh greenpeace protests after this so oh yes stay with stay me. tuned listeners we've got some good stuff coming up yeah so one of the big things that people have said about this act is it's seen as having been directly influenced by public concerns over seal culling in a way that the previous protection acts about gray seals were not right okay. and it's yeah it's kind of this perfect compromise or imperfect compromise between conservation and the demands of the commercial fishing industry. So let me talk you through it. Hit me. One of the main things to talk about with this act is it protects common seals for the first time by establishing their breeding season, which is June to August, uh, as a closed season. So they get a closed season from hunting like the existing grey seal closed season. So for the first time, both seals become protected in Britain. Mm -hmm. The act also bans the use of poisons and inefficient low-velocity firearms in seal hunting. Okay. So there is this kind of welfare component that's incorporated into the law with regards to seals. Because I have a few hunting buddies, I, I'm curious, like, so what gauge would they consider low-velocity uh, firearms? Do you have any idea? I don't have the exact stuff we could look it up i can send you the i'll send you the website i'm just curious just because i know some people that would find that interesting yeah i mean yeah this act is still in effect today so there's a government website about yeah. it yeah uh, a web page about okay. it so you can look it up and find all the details like i did <laughs> write down all this legal jargon <laughs> um the act also establishes the scientific research bodies eventually become the organizations that monitor the uk seal populations today uh, and advise the government on them, uh, the Sea Mammal Research Unit and the Special Committee on Seals okay. uh, to kind of end that we don't know what's going on discussion or, you know, improve the situation there. Right. The Act also allows the government to establish conservation areas where seal colonies receive year-round protection from hunting. Okay. So that's kind of seen as, you know, like allowing for, yeah, more conservation and more scientific research on seals than there had been previously. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side, the Act doesn't apply in Northern Ireland, and it provided an exception where seals can be killed in the closed season if they are found damaging a fishing net oh. and the fish inside it, which is known as the netsman's defence. And it also crucially gave the government the power to cull seals on private land, like the Farne Islands, right. if it was deemed to be in the national interest. Yeah. Yeah, so basically, this is where we are at the start of the 1970s. Uh, there's been a lot of public backlash to the previous seal culls, but the seal cull is still kind of like on the table as an option. Hmm. And yeah, so then uh, because the act allows the government to enforce a cull on private property, uh, the National Trust basically decides that they want to appear like they're in control of the situation uh, and oversee the culling of grey seals themselves. You know, essentially on the logic that if they don't, the government will step in. Yeah. So they'd rather be in control of that and oversee it themselves than leave it to the government. Yeah. So they start actively culling the breeding female population on the Farne Islands through the 1970s. There's a cull in 1972 and one in 1975. Yeah. And they 
basically justify it on the basis that the National Trust at the time were becoming concerned that the growing grey seal population was moving to islands that puffins were breeding on in the Farne Islands. And they were damaging the soils that the puffins burrow into to create their nests when they're breeding. Uh. So they kind of learned from the 1960s and tried to basically explain that culling is this necessary thing they have to do to protect other species in the Farne Islands. And there's a sort of conservation justification of it. So yeah, they continue culling in the Farne Islands. There is still, you know, backlash and controversy over it, but they are trying to explain, you know, they're really, uh, the National Trust at the time, they are, like you said, stuck in a rock and a hard place between allowing culls on the basis that it might have some conservation benefit and allow them to control the situation or resisting culls and then basically being called out by the government and, you know, being overtaken by the government. Yeah, and and putting other species at risk potentially, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, okay. So that is the 1970s Conservation of Seals Act. The situation in the 70s is these local culls are taking place uh, on the Farne Islands. And the government is sort of open to hearing about the justification of more culls. So what changes is uh, what starts happening on the international scene, which I'm going to show you some photos of. Okay. So here is the photo, and then I'm going to send you a video as well. It's a double whammy of multimedia. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So do you want to describe the photo? Yeah. Okay. So in the first photo that I've just received from Alex, we've got a lady in a sort of... Oh, her coat doesn't have anything on it that says what she's from, but she's sort of leaning over a cute little seal pup with something in her hand. I can't I can't really make it out. I don't know whether she's about to go and give this seal pup a nice little cuddle or whether she's about to pop a cap in its ass. <laughs> I can't tell exactly what it is either, but based on what I know about this photo, I think maybe she's about to dye the seal pup's coat. I see. Oh, it does look like a spray bottle, yeah. actually. And you can see the coloring on the on the seal as if she's already sprayed it. So I assume she's trying to stop hunters from taking taking this one by ruining the pelt. Yeah. So, yeah, this is a photo of a Greenpeace activist in uh, northern Canada. I think it's Newfoundland uh, in the 1970s. Likely, yeah. Newfoundland. <laughs> yes, good. It is um a photo of yeah the now famous infamous Greenpeace protest that took place in uh 1977 about the commercial culling of seals in Canada. Should we do the video as well? Okay. Okay, so Alex has sent me a video called Bridget Bardot visits Newfoundland seal hunt. So we've got some fun with Bridget ahead of us. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, let's do this. Okay. Three, two, one. So yeah, it's Bridget Bardo. She just got off a plane. She's being interviewed by reporters. Okay, so she's... She's being asked to see what her plans are. And her plans are to save the baby seals. We're just going to imitate all the accents this episode, aren't we? Pretty much, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, basically, this is footage from the 1977 seal protest that takes place in Newfoundland in Canada, which is kind of sort of fronted by Greenpeace. They are one of the big organizations um, involved in the protest. And in 1977, Bridget Bardo comes and visits the protesters in Newfoundland and lends her support to them. And it kicks off this 
just international media storm about seal culling across the Atlantic region. Mm-hmm. So I've got a quote here from Robert A. Lambert, the writer of the um, article that I gave you a quote from earlier, uh, talking about this time. So here we go. In the long run, all subsequent culls and public outcries in Britain were in character shaped by the events on the Farn Islands, but would have the added potency of enduring media hype, the animal rights movement, the International Fund for Animal Welfare, and Greenpeace. So it's the 1970s where seal culling becomes an international issue and uh, becomes an incredibly emotive, um, divisive topic in public conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth mentioning some of the sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, propaganda uh, sort of things that came out during this time through the late 70s and early 80s from from Greenpeace and from these organizations that uh, their are huge anti-sealing campaign um, with just, you know, I'm sure everyone has seen images of, you know, the baby seals being clubbed to death and blood sprung across the ice. And, you know, just uh, a lot of like very sort of visceral and, and horrifying images of violence used to kind of smear any kind of seal hunting industry. Yeah. And so this is kind of an insight into the tactics used by groups like Greenpeace um, and the International Fund for Animal Welfare at the time, uh, they take these images of the seal cull in Canada um, and of, yeah, seals being harmed, blood on the ice, um, and they publicize them to an incredible scale um, to the point where they become heavily um, engraved in the public imagination and understanding of seals. Yeah, and and these uh, images were uh, in a in a term coined by the co-founder of Greenpeace, right? Uh, Bob Hunter, he called them mind bombs, uh, which are basically, uh, you know, used to sh- sort of shock people uh, and, and convince them that certain actions are wrong morally and environmentally, uh, which just wasn't always the case. Uh, yeah. So let me take you to the next part of the story. So it's 1977. The mind bomb has exploded um, as a result of Greenpeace's campaigning in Newfoundland with Bridget Bardot. Greenpeace UK is established in this year. Um, they set up an office in London in 1977. And at the same time, though, the Scottish Government of Agriculture and Fisheries introduces a six year plan to cull the grey seal population in Scotland by 15,000 seals. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they have been keeping an eye on the situation, listening to the outcry from the fishing industry about the supposed damage done by seals uh, and the loss of revenue and yeah there's this kind of concern about the seal population and how much it has grown since the introduction of the 1970s seal act so yeah they advocate for this six-year culling plan Mm -hmm. and basically uh what happens is a huge protest erupts in the orkney islands about the commencement of culling there right so, yeah, so there's, you know, because of all of the images being circulated by like, Greenpeace and uh, Bridget Bardot at this time, there's anger about the killing of seal pups. Mm-hmm. There's anger because the government hires a group of professional hunters from Norway to carry out the cull in the Orkneys. Mm. From the 
what I've seen, the anger is about the fact that there's no local benefit. There's no benefit to local communities. Right. Uh, none of the local hunters get um, any of the revenue. Um, and there's also anger over the fact that scientific evidence in support of the cull is being hotly debated at this point. NERC basically concludes that the grey seal population has grown by 6% a year since the 1960s to uh, 69,000 animals by the mid-70s. Wow. But there's sort of insufficient evidence, um, according to the conservationists at this time, that seal culling would massively benefit the fisheries in terms of revenue. And uh, cutting down the grey seal population would uh, result in an increase in revenue for fishing. Right. Uh, you know, at this time, there's also a recognition that overfishing has reduced stocks in the North Sea yeah. and in Scotland. So I think conservationists are pointing out that there just might not be enough fish in the sea, even if you removed a lot of the seals from that sea. Yeah. Yeah, and they're yeah they're made this kind of scapegoat, aren't they, to kind of yeah pull pressure off the fisheries a little bit. Yeah, and that's a big argument from the conservationists that seals are always being made out as the scapegoat for the fishing industry's problems. Mm -hmm. So it all kicks off in October 1978. Greenpeace's signature flagship, the Rainbow Warrior, they're like main uh, boats that they uh, sailed around the world, like protesting whaling operations with. Um, that sails into the main harbor in the Orkney Islands. Uh, Kirkwall Harbour. Um, and yeah, the protesters on board the Rainbow Warrior spend the next two weeks trailing after the Norwegian boat with the seal hunters on it in order to prevent the start of the cull. And then there are protesters clashing with government officials on the walls of Kirkwall Harbour. At one point, there's a uh, bomb scare on the vessel wow. used by the Norwegian hunters. So it's really kicking off. There's a lot of direct action, a lot of protesting. A lot of, a lot of put out hippies. <laughs> <laughs> to be so like uh, derogatory about it there's a lot of um power to the people but yeah there's a lot of anger there's a lot of backlash and the protests are getting more and more extreme and more and more concerning to the government at the same time globally the european parliament and the international union for the conservation of nature ask for a halt to the cull of gray seals in the orkney islands so these large conservation bodies and political bodies are asking the uk to call off the cull and then also there's this continuing public campaign across the UK against seal culling. Uh, and Downing Street receives over 14,000 letters in protest against the Orkney seal cull. Mm. Do you think this was one of the sort of first, like, largely publicized environmental issues about a, a, an animal that, like, in, or maybe not the first, but probably one that received some of the largest public attention? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think... Um... It's really, you know, seals and whales at this time that are receiving this kind of international uh, support and call for protection. And it's kind of, yeah, it's interesting. It's these two species of animal that everybody rallies. Well, you know, the majority of people rally around the protection of uh, in a way that they may not have done so about other animals. So it's sort of, yeah, you know, uh, the tactics used by these groups really drum up a lot of public emotion hmm. to the point where, yeah, seals become this totemic species that needs to be protected at all costs mm -hmm. and yeah all of this public backlash all of this direct action all of this kind of worry about where the protests are leading this goes up to the top of government and on the 17th of october 1978 bruce millen the scottish secretary of state announces that the norwegian hunters are going to be dismissed only 2,000 seals will be culled in the orkneys rather than the 4,300 that had been initially proposed and then after that, no more culling would take place unless the Sea Mammal Research Unit and the Special Committee on Seals advise it to be beneficial. Okay. 
Interesting. And yeah, this is kind of it for organized culling in Britain. Grey seal culls do take place in the Farne Islands up to 1985. Um, but then the National Trust basically decides that seal culling should not be part of the active management of nature reserves that they're pursuing. Hmm. Interesting. And yeah, now they employ wardens to patrol the islands that puffins dig their burrows on to keep the seals at bay when they're breeding there. Right. Interesting. So yeah, this kind of pressure and public backlash about seal culling kind of forces you know, conservationists and also fisheries to explore non-lethal methods of mitigating the impact of seals. I find it kind of funny to picture these like wardens through, you know, October and December on the Farne Islands with like rolled up newspapers like, <laughs> get, get back, get back, you know, <laughs> stop them from moving up onto the puffin burrows. Firstly, I should clarify they're there in the summer months because they're protecting the puffins during their breeding season rather than... Oh, okay, I see. Yeah. And <laughs> I think just their presence is enough to keep the seals at bay. I don't think they quite need a rolled up newspaper. <laughs> like... No, I know. I just, my imagination <laughs> runs away. I don't think grey seals operate on the same level as 1950s schoolboys <laughs> who've just left behind class. <laughs> Back. Back in the sea, you. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, Britain, you know, we, we uphold certain... Um, slightly kind of old traditional values but maybe like yeah chastising people with rolled up newspaper is something we've let go of <laughs> get the cane <laughs> no canes are used people just walk around the islands and they keep the seals uh, at bay fair enough it's a lot less exciting you know it's a good system it works since the 1980s the puffin population and the gray seal population has grown on the farne islands so it's worked to protect those species great and you know, from this point onwards, uh, the 1970s Conservation of Seal Act has only been used to give certain seal colonies protection rather than take it away from them. Since this backlash over culling in the 70s and 80s, conservation orders have been established that have just protected seal populations in certain parts of the UK, particularly the east of England and the east coast of England, from any kind of hunting or use of the netsman's defence. So, yeah, the abandonment of organised seal culling is seen as not only a victory for Greenpeace, but also public sentiment is a key factor in wildlife management. And, you know, it's seen like this controversially by some wildlife biologists who at the time argued that the government listened to public pressure rather than scientific evidence, and um, also by commercial fisheries, who argued that seals were basically being placed over the livelihoods of people. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, there's this idea that, like, the abandonment of seal culling was basically achieved via public sentiment and public backlash, and then that has become a huge factor in the way we now conserve and protect seals uh, in the UK. Um, and, yeah, it's interesting that seals are seen in the way that we view whales, something to protect and not exploit for profit, rather than the way we view animals like red deer in the UK, which is an animal that we cull to prevent it from negatively impacting the environment or food production every year. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, it kind of going on from this, uh, seals uh, are seen not just in the UK, but across Europe as an animal that shouldn't be exploited at all. And more and more projections are introduced that apply to the UK as well um, about seals uh, after the end of culling. And since the 70s and 80s, more protections have been given to common and grey seals across Europe by the UK government and also by the EU. Yeah, and not just Europe. Um, I think the sort of um, heartfelt sentiment 
around protecting seals uh, spread quite worldwide, actually, due to the campaigns from Greenpeace and, and other organizations. Um, with the uh, huge, huge, immense public support around uh, that Greenpeace and, and other organizations were able to uh, drum up, there was a large amount of pressure uh, put on the European Union to ban um, seal products yeah. uh, or seal, seal skin products. And, and uh, although the legislation specified gray seals, in effect, all, all seal products were, were pretty much banned. And for the market for seal products uh, worldwide, this is kind of wi widely acknowledged as the final nail in the coffin. Uh, for 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 seal products uh, and and that, and that market generally with the ban in 1983 um this was seen as a victory uh for animal rights activists around the world people were celebrating um and and cheering for this this ban um but in other places uh, it had a very adverse effect so in the north uh, in in northern Canada, uh, the Inuit communities were very reliant on seal products for their economy. Yeah. To for food, for uh, for for money and and um, for clothing. And um, what happened was, from 1983 to 1985, the average earnings of an Inuit seal hunter went from around $54,000 a year to $1,000. Yeah. And I have some statistics here saying that 18 of 20 villages lost 60% of their income. Jesus. So there was some huge economic uh, recession going on in, in, the nor in these northern communities. And, and to this day, uh, Inuit communities still consider it this depression to be going on, and they call it the Great Depression. And what's uh, even more sort of startling and, and harsh uh, is that this region in North, uh, northern Canada has, uh, has become the highest uh, or the region with the highest unemployment rates in Canada and the highest suicide rates in the world. Whoa. Yeah, with this massive uh, sort yeah. of drop in, in economy. Um, just huge amounts of depression and, and suicide went, ran rampant through these communities. And so, oddly, uh, acknowledging that, that uh, Greenpeace actually went back uh, so in, in 2014, they went back on, on their uh, decades and decades of, sh of smear campaigns uh, against the seal or seal product trade. And they apologized to, to the communities in the north, the Inuit communities. Um, in, and although they did, uh, PETA and IFA, the International Foundation of Animal Welfare, um, and Sea Shepherd Conservation Society did continue with their anti-sealing campaigns. Um, so although Greenpeace sort of recognized the harm that hmm. these campaigns had done to Aboriginal uh, indigenous communities, um, these other organizations actually kind of spat in the face of Greenpeace apology and and actually gave them a lot of gave gave Greenpeace a lot of flack over sort of um, going back on on what they. 
uh, originally had been saying. Yeah, one of the okay. biggest uh, criticisms of um, the anti-SEAL protests that were led by organizations like Greenpeace in the 1970s is that they made no distinction between uh, the commercial exploitation of baby and adult heart seals and the subsistence style hunting of adult harp seals and only adult harp seals by Inuit communities. Um, and they basically lumped yeah. everything in under one label and generated a lot of yes, public yeah. backlash to it. Um, and I think it's interesting that the end of end of organized seal culling in the UK and the kind of continuing government hesitation to consider anything like uh, culling seals on the basis of public backlash it's kind of seen as this victory for the people in the UK and for the public's love of wildlife. Mm. Uh, and while it's a victory for the people in the UK, it is a major loss to Inuit and native communities in Canada. Mm. Yeah, to a c cultural and historical way of life. Yeah, it's like almost gone extinct yeah. in, in, a in less than a generation, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, what I wanted to do for the rest of the episode is basically talk about where we are now in the several decades after the end of organized seal culling in the UK. And the first thing I want to point out is that the controversy around the growth of seal populations in the UK and around seal shooting didn't end with the end of culling in the 70s. For the last several decades, there's been this long running controversy about the use of the netsman's defense and about Scottish salmon farms obtaining licenses to shoot seals swimming around their nets, um, which has led some animal rights organisations to label this mm -hmm. as an unofficial underground cull that has been happening in the UK for the past several decades. And this is something that's come up kind of in a recent, in recent legal changes in both Scotland and in England. So yeah, in 2020, like last year, the Scottish Parliament uh, passed a new act that repealed the granting of a license to shoot seals on the grounds of protecting fisheries. Hmm. And then on March 1st, 2021, which, by the way, was like last week. Right, yeah. So while I was researching this episode, the law changed. Wow, that's quite interesting. And I had to be like, all right, let's get this in. So we're actually... Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, on March 1st, 2021, the UK government officially amended the 1970s Conservation of Seals Act by removing the Netsman's Defence exception to the protection of seals. Oh, wow. Okay. The act had already been used to give uh, year-round protection to most of the seal colonies in England. Hmm. Uh, there was a conservation order that was established in 1999 that protected seal colonies along the entire east coast of England. But yeah, it basically means that now salmon fisheries have to by law use non-lethal methods to protect their stocks against seals like special anti-predator nets right before seal shooting was kind of seen as the last resort but it was there like they could apply for a license to shoot a seal to protect their fishing stock and that has now been removed as an option right but yeah one thing that's interesting about these new legislative changes that have happened in the past couple of years is they seem to be tied to the fact that the US passed new legislation that comes into force in 2022 that could actually ban the import of Scottish salmon if the industry is found to be uh, killing seals in the production of salmon. Oh. Interesting. Strange. I feel like uh yeah it's just like an odd odd thing though no? like cuz it's like because this would have been Trump, right? Yeah. Like, well, like the tail end of Trump. Like in tra Trump's mind, like, oh, destroy all of the US's environment. But Scotland, if you shoot a seal, I'm not buying any more of your salmon. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know under which administration this has been passed or if it's a very recent Biden 
thing. Um, it would have been like formulated and developed probably under Trump, maybe like passed once he's out of the way. But the loopholes by which a seal can legally be shot have been closing across the Atlantic, basically. Right. The other obvious consequence of the end of organized culling is that both the gray seal and the common seal populations have increased overall, um, especially yeah. from the 1970s onwards. Because like they've in, on the east coast of Canada, they more than doubled quite a bit more than doubled two decades yeah so according to the most recent population counts in the waters around the uk there are now over one hundred fifty thousand gray seals which is 40 percent of the global population and the north sea gray seal colonies are still growing in size at the moment uh population growth in scottish colonies is leveling off probably because the sites that host breeding colonies are starting to reach carrying capacity there's basically as many seals there as the site they are breeding on can sustain there are also now over forty-five thousand common seals in the uk so yeah they're not that common (laughs) compared to gray seals but what interestingly while the overall population of the species has increased since 2000 the number of common seals in the orkney islands has fallen by 78 percent and we still don't really know why really so uh, sorry where was it there um, oh, in, in the Orkney. Orkney Islands. Okay. It's yeah, it's an ongoing research area, and the Scottish government has funded a five-year research program for the Sea Mammal Research Unit to investigate the cause of the decline. I think they're due to publish their findings soon, so maybe we'll cover it in a future episode. Cool. But from their latest report, they have outlined what uh, are the probably the most likely causes of the decline of common seals in, in the Orkney Islands, uh, and what they consider research to fo- should be focusing on hmm. and the most likely causes of this decline according to the sea mammal research unit are changes in prey quality and availability in northeast scotland competition with other marine predators including gray seals which have grown in mm-hmm. population size in the area right potentially predation by killer whales <laughs> because there's anecdotal evidence that killer whales in the shetland islands at least do prey on common seals and they're actually the only resident predator in UK waters that might prey on seals. Anywhere else in the UK waters, they don't have a predator. They are the apex predator of the ecosystem. Mm. Um, and the other suggested causes of the decline are toxins from harmful algae, and then maybe even the indirect impacts of climate change, um, if climate change is driving changes in prey availability, and also increases in harmful algal blooms as well. Right. So yeah, there's this ongoing decline of common seals and it's still a bit of a mystery to scientists but that's just at the orkneys right because the you yeah. said that their population has grown on you in uk yeah. waters yeah and yeah it seems to be it's a very big issue in seal conservation at the moment and also in the local economy of the orkney islands because um a lot of seal tourism is focused there and people involved in that industry are worried about what's happening to the seal population well i have heard some stuff about like the North Sea being extremely polluted. Yeah. And being like one of the sort of dirtiest bits of the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. And it's interesting, like, since the movement away from viewing seals as a resource that might need to be culled, there's a kind of greater appreciation of seals as part of a wider marine ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And in areas like the Thames, look, grey and common seals are expanding into increasingly. They're kind of seen as a good uh, indicator, like maybe fish populations in the river thames estuary are recovering after decades of pollution Mm, right and then the last thing i wanted to discuss is basically has our collective love of seals as wildlife to enjoy in britain gone 
possibly too far. A number of organizations uh, relating to seal conservation in the UK have started to sound the alarm about seal disturbance um, and the issue of seal selfies <laughs> and the possibility of people getting too close to seals, particularly breeding seals or seals with pups, um, and disturbing them in a way that forces them to cause injury to themselves or maybe even abandon their pups and increase pup mortality. Well, this is something we've seen pretty much firsthand, right? I mean, yeah. uh, I mentioned earlier about the guy we met that told us about the pup getting abandoned at the uh, Grey Seal colony we visited. But uh, not only that, before we ran into that fella, we saw two guys trying to get uh you know nature photos and things of the seal colony and trying to get some pretty close-up ones and there was several times i think the three of us were pretty put out by the the distancing these two guys were doing yeah and i looked at the location of the seal colony we visited on instagram and on twitter and i did find quite a lot of photos of people walking around the beach area, you know, taking selfies with seals and also walking around the beach with dogs like off their leashes, uh, which is a big issue (laughs) um, because of the potential disturbance that dogs can cause to seals and, you know, uh, damage. But most of us now in Britain understand uh, seals to be these cute animals that are worthy of protection. And I think there's a lot of public affection for them. But they might not be as good as understanding about what you should actually do if you encounter a seal on a beach in Britain. And this is becoming more relevant because, you know, in the coronavirus pandemic, whenever we've been allowed to travel outside of our local area and the weather's been good, what do we all do in Britain? Go to the beach. Yeah, the mass migration. Yeah. And because of the population growth um, experienced by a lot of seal colonies, it's more likely that in some areas you may encounter a seal if you're on a walk uh, along the beach, depending on where you are. Yeah, do you know any of the key signs of seal disturbance uh, to look out for if you encounter a seal? Oh, like the sort of body language that the seals will do to show that they're not enjoying your company? Yeah. Well, uh, that's a good point. Let me see. I I mean, uh, like I said, like I literally just said, we saw some dudes doing it. I mean, they try and run away. Like what we saw firsthand was that the seals like generally we're just trying to run away from those two guys yeah and there's kind of two forms of behavior seals can exhibit if they feel disturbed and threatened uh by the presence of people one of them is known as tombstoning and that's when seals see a person and then dive off a rock straight into the water head first oh right and yeah that's an issue because in doing that they can potentially damage themselves uh depending on you know the depth of the water that they dive into the other form of seal disturbance behavior is known as stampeding and then that's when seals are alerted to the presence of a person and all start to rush towards the water yeah and in doing so they might quickly seals aren't that agile they might quickly move across rock surfaces and injure themselves in the process Um, and also mother seals might abandon their pups yeah so i thought to end the episode we should make sure that public sentiment is used in the service of good wildlife care and try and come up with a slogan for how you should react if you come across a seal on a beach you know kind of like hands face space but for seals stop drop and roll yeah you know (laughs) What are those catchy things that you can immediately recall if you encounter a seal? Seal your lips. <laughs> seal your lips and shut the hell up. 
<laughs> Maybe a pun was going to help us here. Maybe one of your puns is finally going to do some good. <laughs> <laughs> the best I've got is if you come across a seal, keep your distance, cut the noise, leash the dog. That's what I've got as my like three three things. You know, stay at home, say save lives, save the NHS. That's my three for seals. Well, let's hear them again. Keep your distance, cut the noise, leash the dog. I feel like we okay. need like a third cur noise. Cut the noise. I still think you just seal your lips. Seal your lips. Just yeah, seal your lips, keep your distance. Flip flip. <laughs> I don't know. I'd like to imagine this is what environmental policy meetings are like in government. People are like, can we get a pun in there? <laughs> I mean, when when anyone ever asks that question, the answer is yes. <laughs> this is what happens when you're one day working in government. We just start seeing puns pop up on like public billboards everywhere. And I'm like, oh, okay, all right. Only got a new job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, let's see. Let's see. Are you Googling puns? I'm Googling things that like might... <laughs> Sorry, I just sorry. It you know when it's like frequently asked questions, people yeah. also ask, uh, do do seals like being petted? For the most part, no. Is <laughs> the answer. This is what I'm talking about. We need to address seal disturbance because we think seals are cuddly things that like to be petted. When really we should stay away from them for their own good. I know. It's so so I guess yeah the conclusion from that brainstorm is we will leave <laughs> we'll leave that to the experts <laughs> seal protection policy to the experts um I actually have something here about how to um ethically watch seals and this is from <laughs> the British Divers Marine Life Rescue who is the organization in the UK that deals with stranded seals and stranded whales and dolphins as well okay well these uh, these guys seem like they know what they might be talking Right, so I'm going to defer to the experts for the end of the episode and say, here are the things you should do when you see a seal. One, keep well away. Use your camera or binoculars. Two, keep quiet so seals can't hear us. Three, stay downwind so seals can't smell us. Four, stay out of sight so seals can't see us. Do you see the pattern here? <laughs> Five, dogs. Keep them under control on leashes. And six, litter. Take it home. There you go. Simple stuff to nicely view a seal without anyone having any negative impact from the re as a result. That, that's great. Thanks everyone for listening today to this episode of Wild Ideas hosted by me, Oliver Flo, and me, Alex Shuttleworth. And our theme music, as always, is made by the lovely and talented Bruno Mertz. If you would like to show some support, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Wild Ideas Podcast. We'll be posting all our sources for the episode there, along with behind-the-scenes content and extra morsels of nature knowledge. Once again, thanks for listening. Uh, Alex and I have some much-needed therapy we need to attend after our horrific experience on the coast with the gray seals. I think this counts as the therapy as well, talking it out. Yeah. Like, this is the <laughs> yeah. first step on it. <laughs> do, you, do you feel better, Alex? Do you feel better now? Now I've publicly talked about a seal penis on this podcast. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, yeah, we'll use that as the ending. Bye! <laughs>
there was there's definitely a pun to be done there about like the seals getting getting some tail. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you're allowed one pun. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, I, I wasn't gonna use it on that. You know? <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. Like I I'll put them all in. Like <laughs> I guess. I'll find ways to slot them in. 